We have a two-segment word-by-word conversation with writers show this afternoon from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Even though it doesn't sound like it, this is your host, Gil Manser, inviting you to first meet with the festival director and two of the filmmakers whose award-winning documentaries will be part of the exciting and still very cool 7th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, which will take place the last few days of March. In the second segment, we welcome Susanna Solomon, author of the recently released short story collection, Sheriff's Call, Stories Inspired by the Point Gray's Light, working for the Sebastopol Center for the Arts as the program director for the 7th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival. Jason Perdue travels to film events around the country, seeing firsthand how successful festivals are run, screening documentaries, and making valuable contacts to ensure the SDFF gets better each year. Jason, I want to welcome you back to Word by Word. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm going to let you do most of the talking today for obvious reasons. Okay, sounds so good. So tell us what uh, what is are the highlights that people should really be aware out of that's different this year. You've only got three venues. Um, well, three, but we're using three screens at the Rialto. So right. really six screens going all okay, at once, great. which is actually the most we've ever had uh, going with a full slate. So uh, it's really a, a pretty ambitious program for us. You know, more seats. Uh, more venues than we've ever had, more films than we've ever had. So we're showing 71 films in four days. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, I don't have any particular favorites, but there are some highlights and things that I want people to make sure that they know about. Um, one of the first ones being obviously opening night. I mean, opening night is always our, our uh, kind of the kickoff of the whole thing. And it's uh, a film. A festival within the festival. Yes, exactly. Where we give out our awards and um, – uh, have a you know a big party and show a film that I think is really going to excite the audience a lot and really get them fired up for the rest of the weekend. Uh, it's a film called Maiden Trip, about a 14-year-old Dutch girl who decides she wants to sail around the world, and uh, just an amazing uh, story of strength and and freedom and um, determination that uh, I think um, people are really gonna really gonna love. So, as a parent of teenagers, how would you react to that? You know, I showed this to my daughter, and she's watched it twice since. And uh, I, you know, um, I don't relate to the uh, uh, trying to send my kid out into the open seas, but um, but I think there's a message in there of um, of uh, strength and maturity and and independence that I think is a good message for um, for my daughter and for you know middle schoolers uh, um, I've had so, actually a couple of middle school teachers call me um, since the program came out asking about bringing their entire class to opening night so I think that the the message is definitely positive so this is an all family opening night absolutely okay yeah um, <clears throat> Another thing that would say happening on the next uh, the next evening uh, Friday night is uh, we have an opportunity to screen a a film th- whose title we can't release because um, they have not had their North American premiere yet. So it, we're calling it our exclusive surprise film, and um, we're expecting. Uh, for it to be a to be a full house because I think it's uh, it's a kind of film that really will challenge people to um, question what the kind of boundaries of what documentary can be. It's a very personal story. Um, uh, it's about filmmaking. It's about um, love. And, um, and it's about life and death. And I think in a way um, uh, people are really going to be uh, intrigued by it and, and excited. And, and really we're getting an opportunity because of this sneak preview. We're getting an opportunity to see this film 
before it it hits the uh, rest of the country and really the conversation you know may kind of pick up from there hmm. well following up on that in a different kind of a documentary is this hybrid documentary program right so this is a program that we've been curating for the for this entire year and actually received a grant from the Community Foundation Sonoma County to help uh, fund this program. And so unlike most of the festival where we have an open call for entry and, and films kind of come through that and we and we pick and choose um, based on that, um, this was actually a curated program where we went out and sought these films uh, specifically for this program. And, and we call them hybrid documentaries because they're films that really um, straddle the line between fiction and nonfiction and they really play with that um, – uh, the notion of what documentary can be by using a lot of narrative film elements to to make their points and tell their stories mm-hmm. um, in a way that um, I think is uh, one, it, it's not um, encumbered by worrying about what a particular genre is, whether this is fiction or nonfiction or what that means. But also um, I think when you see films like this um, – in a documentary film festival, I think it points to the kind of uh, construction and fabrication of all documentaries, and it makes you really kind of think about that. And I think there's going to be an, a nice, interesting, uh, somewhat academic discussion about all of those uh, topics as these different films that use different types of uh, narrative film techniques and different types of cinematic um, elements to to tell these documentary stories, you know, animation, recreation, um, some full-on scripted acting. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, discussion that, that evolves from that. Well, you've certainly got great people who are making the films. One of them who everyone should recognize is Orson Welles. Yeah, part of our hybrid documentary program is what we're calling a cult doc nights. Um, for the first time in the history of the film festival, we're going to be showing films that start um, at 9.30, which is, uh, you know, getting out at 11 o'clock or later is uh, different for us. So on Friday and Saturday night, we've, we're picking two uh, cult docs to do that. And the first one is on Friday night is Orson Welles' F for Fake, which is just an amazing film about um, about how you represent reality and what it is and what it means to be fake or lie or cheat or to deceive the audience in any way. And I think it it's, uh, shows the history of uh, these t- types of hybrid documentaries. And then on Saturday night, we're showing Guy Madden's classic film, uh, My Winnipeg, about yeah. his uh, growing up in Winnipeg, which is just an amazing film, which uh, many people probably would never call a documentary, but as you watch it, you see, and he even describes it as what he calls docu-fantasia. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a fascinating and I hadn't quite a, you know, categorized it that way until I saw it in the program, so that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay, so during the uh, regular, uh, we've got Saturday, we've got a really special thing going on, two things actually. We've yeah. got um, um, Rick Fellinger back. Yeah, Rick Prellinger's coming back to the, uh, to the film festival for the second year in a row with his annual um, update to the Lost Landscapes of San Francisco. This mm-hmm. is number eight. And after last year's uh, amazing uh, uh, turnout and also just the – the uniqueness of this program, basically they're live documentary events. Um, he has home movies and footage from a San Francisco that no longer exists that um, for the most part are um, – Just memories. Just memories, yeah. yeah. Just memories in, in, in people um, and, and all, of, all of the 
you know, thousands of ex-San Franciscans that live in Sonoma County love to come to these kinds of events. And because most of these are home movies, they don't have soundtracks. So they're basically silent. Right. So what Rick does is he narrates over the top of it, telling us where things are and what things are going on. But he encourages and, and insists that the audience ask questions, yell out things when they see things. You know, when you get that many people in the room, you get a kind of crowdsourced uh, information about things that even Rick, with all of his knowledge and all of his experience, may not know about some of these places because someone will say, hey, I lived on that corner. I know that store. Before it was that place, it was this place. Or two years later, it became this or it burned down or – and it's, it's it, it, he can show this film a hundred times in the Bay Area, and every single screening is going to be a different experience based on the people that are there and the knowledge that they bring. So it's really a unique opportunity for us, and we really like having Rick involved with the film festival. Well, anyone who remembers the laughing woman outside the funhouse at uh, Playland at the beach, uh, that's part of the the things he's going to be showing are some clips from there. And they'll take people right back because that laugh is uh, something that sticks in your brain. Yeah. 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 Okay. We also have uh, Bob Elfstrom coming. He's a wonderful cinematographer. Worked in all kinds of things. Did the Running Fence documentary, which many people in the county know, right? Um, and participated in making. So he also worked with Gimme Shelter and um, Johnny Cash, the man, his world, and his music, which are certainly you know first class work, right? And he's going to share uh, some techniques, I guess, as well as just how I, you know, it was to be there, kind of thing. I think so. I, it, you know, he's really a master cinematographer and lighting expert, and he's going to come and he's going to talk about his just his forty year love affair with light, is what he calls it. And I think that that's really um, an opportunity for um, all of our filmmakers. Uh, uh, aspiring filmmakers and as well as the different, um, you know, people that are just interested in in how documentary films are made. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, part of our ongoing series year after year of highlighting some of the people that go into the uh, the bones of making documentaries. And this is just yet another one of our amazing, uh, you know, Bay Area experts in that field. Well, it's a wonderful program. I'm a print program that you put together. Seventh annual. I know when we started this, gosh, eight, nine years ago, we had no idea it was going to continue on like this, but it's gotten better and better each year. Yeah, it really uh, The program is, is glossy and fun and interesting to read. There's a, a breakout of the whole weekend's film schedule, which is really simple to follow, I hope, for everybody who understands graphs. The, um, the regular programs, we've got the opening night has only one show because everybody's going to be getting together at the Robert Brent Auditorium at the Sebastopol Center for the Arts. And everybody should know, should everyone know that we're at that new location? We're not back in Depot Street anymore. We're in the no. old... Uh, we're in the uh, we're in uh, Sebastopol Veterans, Veterans Building, Building right. which is the new location of the Sebastopol Center for the Arts on High Street. Mm-hmm. And uh, this will be our second year of having the film festival there uh, full time. And we're really excited. And, uh, you know, most of the con- uh, inside construction is finished now. So really... No, no hammering this year, huh? No, no. They're working on some outside things now. But uh, right now, the inside's all finished. So we're really excited about um, just really, you know, turning it into the, the home of the film festival. Right. Well, starting in the afternoon on Friday, there's three uh, movies being shown at the Rialto. And then uh, that evening at 7, there's one, two, three, four, five films being shown at the 6.45 or 7 o'clock time. So it's a, a full time, and the hard part is going to be to decide which movie to go to. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, uh, in the past, I would have 
Um, if people had asked me, you know, which film I should see, um, you know, based on their own interests and things, I might suggest something. But in general, I like people to get to the films where we're going to have filmmakers at the screenings and really make it a festival experience, which is, you know, have a little Q&A, get an opportunity for my audience to engage with the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But in reality, we have so many filmmakers coming. It's it's still it's making it even harder to choose. I mean, that Friday night in that 7 to 7.30 time slot, we have a filmmaker who's going to be at every single one of those movies. That's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And they're from all different parts of the world, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So um, you're not going to suggest what's best on Friday night then? Huh? That would be saying which of your children was the best. Well, that's pretty much how it feels. I mean, we got we got both the sneak preview film that I already talked about, the kind of headliner of our um, – uh, hybrid uh, program, Oversimplification of Her Beauty, mm-hmm. and then uh, film uh, Finding Hollywood that's nominated for our jury award and uh, who we're going to have a conversation with in a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful film. Yeah. The other thing um, that I wanted people to be aware of, and this is a different time. Let me see what time that's offered. Is um, Sunday is the American Commune, which doesn't sound like a film that you know necessarily would you'd want to look at, but it is about the farm. That uh, commune in rural Tennessee, and I know there are many people in in the you know West County area who have roots there. Yeah, I think that uh, you know I I don't I don't know if it's accurate, but I've heard people uh, that that grew up on the farm say there's more uh, farm expats in the, in Sonoma County than anywhere else in this country. So um, I think that there's going to be a big crowd and uh, maybe even somewhat of a, a reunion kind of a feel there at that screening on Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. We've got a wonderful film about Alice Walker. We, in fact, tell us about the different genres, if you could categorize them. I know we've got biographies, we've got art artists, and yeah. uh, films about uh, social issues. And tell us more. Well, um, you, since you mentioned Alice Walker, um, this is a film. You know, obviously, uh, a, a amazing writer, activist, uh, feminist. And um, it was we had an opportunity to acquire this film for the film festival, and we really thought that our audience would respond to this. Um, we're partnering with Copperfield's Books to bring the film here, um, and the filmmaker will be here. We have a couple of great historical films. The one was uh, about Here Was Cuba, mm-hmm. which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, we have one uh, called The Loving Story, which was nominated for – or was shortlisted for an Academy Award last year um, about the uh, – uh, landmark case of uh, integrated marriage um, in the uh, 50s. Right. So, you know, we Not just Not that have, long ago. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, and I think it's really, uh, when you see the movie, you see the parallels between that and the current kind of uh, uh, debate going on with the uh, gay marriage and all of this um, uh, what laws is, being... What is marriage? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So... Very, very current. You've also got some films that are... Um, I guess we will say focused in place. You know, they're so set in where they are and mm-hmm. in time and place. Um, you've you know, got Desert Runners and you've got uh, Bilwani Junction, which is a, really a sports film about boxers in uh, in Himanshu. Uh, right. Yeah, is, the, is the boy that's focused on there. And, um, I'm just amazed how you can travel the world just in, by going to Sebast- downtown Sebastopol. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the uh, part of the curatorial process and the programming process is that we really want to bring as many uh, interesting, 
well-made, well-told stories from all over the place that we can um, with, without really too much uh, of an agenda of trying to make any kind of point or have any kind of overarching theme, but really just try to get as much um, uh, breadth of uh, storytelling as we can find. Mm-hmm. So what have been the exciting highlights for you getting this, this year's uh, program together? Well, I think it's been um, – uh, it's always the films that you don't expect, the films that you think that you know that you um, when they come in randomly through the the call for entry and you see the title or you start to you know you and you you just don't expect a whole lot and they really shock you you know uh, we have a film called Mommy I'm a Bastard right. which when I saw that and I saw the title and I read the description I thought oh another adoption movie and it just really blew me away it's just a film about uh, about a loving family that um, tackled the uh, question of adoption in a way that I'd never seen before and and this uh, and this man decides to tell his family's story around it and I think it's, it's really fascinating uh, another film called What I Hate About Myself yeah that's a very interesting film yeah is it especially when looking at girl model last year right exactly yeah. I mean it's just a film about um, the changing world of China really and how uh, reality television and uh, self-worth and self-image and all these things are are overtaking that culture in a way and forcing these, you know, these young women to – Beautiful young women. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it's really – it's a film about uh, women competing to win plastic surgery to change their face, which right. is just – it sounds shocking and yet it's really not that far off of um, half the television shows here too, I'm sure. Reality TV. Yeah. Yeah. See, so um – they came across your the transom, and they were unexpected, and that's always the fun when fun right. surprise things. Did you search out a particular film that you'd seen in one of your travels that you really really wanted to have this year? Well, another film called A Will for the Woods was one that I saw when I was in D.C. for the AFI Docs Film Festival, mm-hmm. and it's a film about green burial, and it's about specifically about a guy who decides um, – he realizes he's got cancer. He's probably going to die fairly soon. He decides that he wants to have a green burial. He wants his – Tell everybody on them. They may not be aware of what that means. Well, um, he wants to be buried in a way that is um, as natural and as, um, I guess, environmentally sound and giving back to the earth as possible. And that may or may not be within the confines of an actual cemetery. Um, through the course of the movie, he does find some cemeteries that are offering this outside of the regular, um, you know, uh, manicured lawn setting. But actually, within the uh, adjacent uh, wooded areas that mm-hmm. are un un uh, uh, kept for the most part, other mm-hmm. than some walking paths, and he um, goes through on a path to uh, make sure that this can happen, and also to promote green burial in general around the country. And it's just a fascinating story. Not just for the green burial aspects, but also because this man is so courageous throughout this movie um, as he faces his own uh, mortality and um, wants to leave a a legacy that he thinks is uh, important. And um, it's a movie that I think um, will resonate with our community quite a bit. There's one film uh, which is fascinating, The Suitcase of Love and Shame. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, read books perhaps about someone who found those letters, you know, in the trunk and it talked about the affair their mother had with this National Geographic photographer. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, this is like that. Only they are 
uh, tape recordings yeah. between two lovers, and um, they're discovered by their um, – in just out of the blue, I mean, they're found at a garage sale, as I remember. Uh, I think I think they purchased them on eBay. Actually. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, film because um, obviously she had to really edit down. I mean, apparently it was sixty to hundred hours of tapes hmm. and some photographs and different things. And the way the film was put together, it's really it's like an interesting time capsule. Um, you can hear. The, the the time period in their voice, in the kind of words that they use, the way that they talk, the things that they talk about, it really like as a, as you as you watch it, it's and it's really like this audio documentary with these images that are kind of interlaced with it. And you, I really felt like I was there. I really, it has this kind of Mad Men kind of. Uh, you feel like you have a drink in your hand and then you want to smoke a cigarette or something. That's how. Oh, it, a cigar. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 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 an amazing piece of filmmaking. It is also part of our hybrid uh, program. Mm-hmm. So we got a very very full weekend. We're going to have some phone calls uh, to some of the filmmakers next. Joining us by phone from New York is Peggy Vale, talking about her documentary film Gringo Trails. Peggy is an anthropologist and associate director for media, culture, and history at NYU. Welcome to Word by Word, Peggy. Hi, Gil. Hey, for the audience, what would you suggest they look for in your film? Hmm. I think that oftentimes, you know, it's more. It's in some ways, it's a philosophical look at travel and and our own impact in the world. So I would say, just thinking about it as opening the conversation into our roles as individuals in in and how we live and um, and how we impact the world and the cultures around us. People, we've had amazing responses um, from audiences, really, really great. And I think, you know, it depends on the age of the traveler. I think for young people um, it's important to see because they're just first starting out maybe taking trips and, um, and thinking about these issues. And then for people maybe that have, are seasoned travelers or maybe even that haven't traveled a lot but have seen changes in their own communities, um, whether it's gentrification or, or tourism, um, you know, it's kind of like a reflective, helps to reflect back and think about think about our impact and how we might give back now or make some changes and plan ahead. So I think it's um, it's hopefully just opening the conversation on all these topics for folks, and and that's what we've seen in the audience discussions afterwards. A real a real desire to to talk about the issues. For our listeners, I want them to know that uh, Gringo Trails is going to be shown Saturday morning at eleven fifteen. So. If you're trying to pick, you know, your schedule, what to go to, uh, there's an example uh, to think about. I want to thank you again, Peggy, for joining us from so far away. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, great. Look forward to seeing you in Sebastopol in March. Same. We're we're looking forward to it as a as a travel journey too. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> okay. Talk to you there. Okay. Bye. Bye. By phone is producer director. Leah Warshawski, who specializes in producing documentary-style video content, television shows, and short films in over 30 countries. She has a B.A. in Japanese language from the University of Hawaii and has worked on a number of Japanese commercials as well as the network television show, I Survived a Japanese Game Show. Before developing Finding Hollywood, Leah worked in Hawaii in the Marine Department for major features and shows including Baywatch and Lost. So, Leah Warshawski, tell us about Finding Hollywood and how you found, how do you say his name, Ayub? Ayub, yeah, thank you. So, 
Ayub kind of found us, to be honest. The film found us. Um, we were in Rwanda on a different project and hired some local filmmakers. And the last day we were in Rwanda, we were asking the guys, you know, so what else do you do for fun? And they told us about Hollywood and, you know, the idea of 5,000 people standing in the middle of a jungle or a stadium, you know, watching movies for the first time in their own language was definitely something that piqued our interest. Um, and Ayub was, was one of the first people we ever worked with in Rwanda, so it was natural for us to have more access to him. And that relationship just grew over the last, you know, six, seven years to the point of now he's, he's kind of part of our family. Mm-hmm. Well, the opening scene, you know, where he's talking about his memories of the lake and the ghosts that are there and how he feels responsible is just, uh, it just captures your, right in the middle of your heart. Yeah, and, you know, what's interesting is that um, we didn't really learn about that story about his mother until we were, we thought we were done making the film. Mm. And so that, that took a while, you know, that kind of trust and that level of trust with your characters takes a little while. And for us, it took about five years. And um, hearing that story and having Ayub open up to us really changed the course of our film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- I, what I really love about it is that um, you know we've spent the last uh, ten years seeing documentaries and stories about Rwanda that are obviously right. retelling the atrocities there, and I think that your film, while it has that as the background, of course, that informs what's going on, I think that your film is so um, life affirming and so um, inspiring in a way that uh, that. Thank you. It doesn't scare people off to see, oh, my God, another film about Rwanda. Yeah, thanks. We're, we're actually getting that response a lot um, at festivals. People are surpri- pleasantly surprised, and they leave you know, feeling good, which is rare um, for a film about Rwanda. Right. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're really, we love sharing the film with audiences and so far audiences are are echoing what you just said, Jason, which is that, you know, they don't expect that it's going to be hopeful, but they're glad that it is. And, you know, we have people, we just had a couple come up to us when we screened the film in Missoula last week and um, just gave us a hug. (laughs) We want to thank Leo Warshawski, who with Christopher Toey is the director and producer of Finding Hillywood, which will be showing on Friday at 7.15. Yeah, great. Thank We're... you. Yeah, hope to see you all there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Looking forward to seeing you. Thanks, guys. All right. So, Jason, where can people find a copy of this very colorful 7th Annual Program for the Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, March 27th through 30th, 2014? Well, currently you can get them at the Sebastopol Center for the Arts in downtown Sebastopol, but they're also being distributed as widely around Sonoma County as possible. So keep your eyes open in your favorite uh, shops in uh, Copperfield Books, Whole Foods Markets, and and different places. Uh, definitely, you can't miss it. Uh, it's bright uh, red and yellow, and you pick it up. And uh, um, But you can also go online, watch all the trailers, buy tickets online uh, for convenience at sebastopolfilmfestival.org. And um, 
and, and of course, you can always buy tickets uh, by calling us at the Center for the Arts uh, at uh, 829-4797. Very good. All right. I want to tell you that's a very user-friendly website. You can find out a tremendous amount of information on there. gets better and better every year. Yeah, we've been working on it. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. All right. Thank you again, Jason Perdue, the program director for the Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival's seventh annual outing. Great. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to Word by Word with Gil Manzer here on KRCB Radio 91, Windsor, Santa Rosa. Stay tuned for the second half of the show. Welcome back to Word by Word on KRCB FM, where our next guest is Susanna Solomon, the author of Point Ray's Sheriff's Calls, a collection of short stories based on the Sheriff's Calls column in the Point Ray's Light. Originally a Massachusetts resident, Susanna moved to San Anselmo when it had a hardware store, a five and dime, remember those, a shoe repair shop, a car parts shop, two department stores, and two pharmacies downtown. She raised her young family in the 70s and became a freelance journalist, but quickly found that her prospect in that realm were limited, so she turned her attention to becoming an electrical engineer, earning a uh, degree from San Francisco State, and that's still her day job. Many of Susanna's stories, inspired by the Sheriff's Call section of the Point Race Light, are humorous. Some are sad, and some are just plain quirky. She asked, how can I run out of material with the intriguing people of West Marin as my inspiration? Her success with short story writing has come as a complete surprise and came on the heels of over 25 years of struggling with writing novels and memoirs. Suzanne, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you, Gil, and I appreciate your new voice. Well, this is hopefully just a passing thing, so... Basically, the idea is that you, we have several characters. We, actually, you set it up. You tell us how this works. Well, we do have several characters, and um, I, uh, I've been going to readings in uh, in Marin County. Basically, frustrated that I wasn't able to sell my novel, and uh, the readings are five minutes. And uh, at the end of five minutes, in certain places, you get a big, big horn, which is so embarrassing. This is a one-time event. You never want to do it again. And reading a five-minute section of a novel makes no sense. So I started writing um, these stories inspired by the Sheriff's Call's entries to find something to fill this five minutes that had a beginning, middle, and an end. And I locked onto this old couple um, who came to me basically fully formed, Mildred, an opinionated sort, to say the least, and her long-suffering husband, Fred. Where do they live? Well, they live actually on the Mesa in Point Reyes Station, uh, so they overlook Tomales Bay. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to read the first one? Uh, sure. Um, certainly, I'll read the first one. And... Um, I felt when I wrote this story that this was possibly a, a, a terrible thing to um, to write and that I would be met with snide and derision by the audience, but um, 
they were either had one too many beers or I had hit on something rather lovely. So this was the first story that I wrote, and it's from the Point Reyes Light, June thirtieth, 2011. This was an unusual day in Point Reyes Station, and this is what the sheriffs wrote. There were no local calls. Good job, West Marin. So that was printed in the paper. That was printed in the paper, and I felt that that was worth a story of itself. So I wrote, what is the first story in the collection called Sheriff's Calls? Beatrice Darcy, 92, stepped into her tub at 12053 Drakesview Drive and did not slip. Mace McKinley, practicing horse jumping for the first time at her cousin Frieda's house in Inverness, did not fall off the horse when the filly saw a blue tent in the woods, bucked, and charged off the trail. Miles Foreman, a software developer from Sunnyvale, in a hurry to attend his best friend's wedding, did not drive his BMW into a ditch on the Petaluma Point Reyes Road. Now, these things that I'm reading that did not happen on this particular day happened on other days that same week. In Bolinas, six teenagers from East San Rafael who had been drinking all day and playing volleyball did not pass out on the beach under a tarp. Actually, no one was camping at all on the beach, first time that had happened in more than 150 days. In Bolinas, they camp all year long on that beach. <laughs> Giacomini's cows out on Route 1 nudged and pushed over a barbed wire fence near Marshall, hunting for the bright green grass at the edge of the road. A black MG Speedster convertible going 60 miles an hour in a 35 zone sped by radio blaring. The cows, content with mouthfuls of green grass, nosed their way back inside their pasture. If you look at the Point Reyes Light Sheriff's Calls, almost every week there are cows on the road. <laughs> Frank Turner, 24, despondent over the loss of his girlfriend, his job, and his house in a matter of months, took a last sip of his father's Jim Beam that Dad had left on the counter by mistake and reached for the second all to down them all as he had thought about all day. Instead, he staggered to the bathroom and fell asleep wedged under the porcelain throne. In the morning, he had a hell of a headache, and the pills had vanished from his hands. No one was out in front of Smiley's Saloon in Bolinas, yelling obscenities, wearing bright orange and blue clothes, and talking to dogs. When I read that to the people at Pints and Pros in Fairfax, they all started laughing because they'd seen those people out there in front of Smiley's and the dogs. Out in San Geronimo, five youths wearing white T-shirts and basketball shorts and holding bags of half-rotten apples eyed the stagecoach bus heading for a stop. They hid behind some trees. Thomas, the youngest, heard his mother calling him, him in for dinner. He dropped his apples and the other boys followed. They were hungry, too. In Lagunitas, a white middle-aged man wearing a white shirt and blue jeans was talking to himself and picking up trash. Deputy Linda Kettleman, sitting nearby in her overheated car, took a bite out of her muffin and turned off her radio. In Mere Beach, Sandra Littlejohn, 42, was upset because someone had parked on the street in front of her home, which was a real sheriff's call on another day that week. Instead of calling 911, she headed to the Pelican Inn for a drink. Willie Havens faced his tenant, a distraught Penny Hennessy, who was not having one of her best days. 
Unable to fork over rent and two months in arrears, she pleaded with William to give her a little more time. Instead of filing a three-day eviction notice as he was about to do, his cell phone buzzed in his rear pocket. It was his mother asking for a ride to church. William gave Penny another month and straightened his tie. All over West Marin, a miracle occurred. No one who got drunk drove. The usual reality-challenged residents did not call the sheriff <clears throat> for an imaginary trespasser. No one stole a wallet, a bicycle, a camera, or a cell phone. No one sped into a ditch. No bicyclists crashed. No one was evicted, and people holding firecrackers behaved sensibly. What is the world coming to, asked Mildred Reinhardt of Point Reyes Station, flipping through the pages of the light. She checked to see if her husband was looking and took a long drink from her flask. I'm disappointed, Fred. How about you? Fred, a deeply devoted Giants fan, rose out of his church chair while watching Linsacum pitch. What exactly are you looking for, Mildred? Trouble, she said, loading her gun. So that's the first time we've ever heard of Fred and Mildred. Yes, yes. and you can see Mildred likes guns. And uh, Linda Kettleman is the new sheriff, the new deputy there, and Thomas is a teenage boy. Mm -hmm. And these characters come in and out of the rest of the stories in the collection. And uh, your favorite characters? Well, it's hard to decide. Um, uh, Alice is a teenager who is 14 who tends to get bloody noses at the wrong time. And my heart goes out to her. Mm -hmm. We've all felt awkward. And Thomas, a teenage boy, has um, girl trouble. And I know you gentlemen have probably had that trouble at some point in your life where girls whisper in your ear and driving becomes kind of a challenge. And uh, Fred adores his wife, but he is much challenged by her. And um, Mildred just goes her merry way doing whatever she feels like. Mm -hmm. So to choose those between those, I don't think I can. They're all quite special to me. Right. When you sit down, and um, you originally had about 20 uh, short stories when you were approached to do a book? I had five. You had five? Uh, wow. And I, only, I sold it on one. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the publisher asked for this one called Following Orders, which is about Fred. Yeah, let's, let's hear that one. Okay. Well, Mildred's in it, too. Mildred's in it, too. Right. But having such success at the, at the reading with that first story, I felt that I was onto something and I should have some fun. And uh, so I kept going. And I had no idea I was good at this. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is well, what you are. By the way. <laughs> well, this yes. is what sold the collection, and okay. I and I wrote all of the stories based on the response I had from this one story. This comes out of the sheriff's calls uh, in the Point Reyes Light, November twenty seventh, twenty eleven, and I wrote two stories on this inspired uh, listing. This is called "Following Orders." At 10.42 a.m., deputies called for a backup for a pedestrian who was not following orders. If you're familiar with downtown Point Way Station, there's nothing going on. Oh, you have to make a turn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is called following orders. There's no crosswalk so I can cross anywhere, Fred Reinhardt told the officer. There was no traffic. It was a sunny day. What were they hassling him for? 
Sir, make up your mind, Officer Anderson requested. But nobody's here, Fred complained. He needed to buy a steak for Mildred, but every time he headed across the street, he couldn't remember which kind or if it was a head of lettuce she wanted. He didn't want to go home empty-handed. Sir, you're slowing up traffic. Fred was in the middle of the road, and a hay truck and Chada's tow truck were stopped, waiting for him to cross. Mildred had been in the kitchen, clucking her tongue and threatening to write down a list and pinning it to Fred's shirt. Now Fred sort of wished she had. Okay, okay, officers, for now there were two of them. He walked back to the relative comfort of the sidewalk and sat down on the bench in front of the bovine. A bakery, I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with. He went through a list in his mind, milk, check, bread. He remembered a big cheese loaf on the counter, coffee. He'd seen Mildred's five-pound bag in the pantry. That left, that left, he sighed, everything. Five minutes later, the officers were gone, and he started once again. The sun was in his eyes. It bounced off a windshield coming up the street, and Fred wasn't in Point Reyes Station at all. He was in a field courting Mildred, pressing a dozen fresh-picked daffodils into her hand, and her face was radiant, her blonde hair shining in the sun, a soft breeze fluttering her sunflower yellow dress. He put out his hand, and she took it, those lovely soft fingers, and she was his, all his, right there on a Sunday afternoon in Ferguson's field, and someone sounded a horn, not a sound he would consider romantic, and she looked at him with a dazed expression on her face, and he went down. Mitch Fontloy of Dillon Beach had seen the man step off the curb and had anticipated him going all the way until the man paused and Mitch had to slam on the brakes of his white F-150. Mitch jumped out of the car, panicked he'd killed a man. Deputies were already on the scene. Mitch felt terrible. Was the man on the street okay? Third time today, Officer Anderson said to his partner, the vivacious and thrilling Linda Kettleman, who joined the force only months before. You'll have to stay here and give a statement, Officer Anderson told Mitch, while Linda checked on the downed man. She took off her jacket, laid it under the old man's head, and cooed. At least Fred thought she cooed. He had a good view down the front of her blouse, and he wasn't going to say anything to change the situation. From this view, she looked so Mildred-like, Mildred like she was younger, Mildred when she used to run in the grass and make him laugh. By the time they got to the police station, Fred had come to the realization that no, this cop was not Mildred, which disappointed him. But when the real Mildred came into the police station, he wasn't so pleased either. Her hair, once blonde and luscious, was now white and braided tight next to her scalp. She looked like a very busy squirrel. She marched right in and elbowed her way to Fred, who was sitting in the captain's chair nursing a cup of coffee. "'We're glad you're here, Mrs. Reinhardt,' Linda said. "'I sent my husband to get chocolate, and next thing I know, deputies are at my house, ringing my doorbell and disturbing my ironing.' "'You can't send him out alone, ma'am,' Linda tried to get Mrs. Reinhardt to understand. He almost got hit by a car. "'But I wasn't, was I, officer?' Fred couldn't remember her last name, and calling her Linda just sounded too familiar. Officer Cuddleman sighed. He can't stay here, ma'am. We've got other calls. Ready then, Fred? Mildred offered her bird-thin arms to his rather heavy body. Light as a feather he was, holding on to her. He waved any help away. 
Shall we go get the steak? he asked eagerly. It was chocolate, you forgetful old thing, Mildred clucked, as they walked into the sunshine. It all seemed the same to Fred. He held his wife's arm proudly as they crossed the street. She felt light as the day they met years ago, his hands full of daffodils, her soft hands reaching for his. As you read these stories to different audiences, do you have people come up to you and say, you're writing about my parents or my aunt and uncle or, or us? Uh, no, actually, I haven't had that experience. Um, but people say, well, where'd you find her? And uh, uh, at, it, is that your grandmother? And I say, no, not really. I mean, she just popped fully formed into my mind. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But uh, I was asked to send this story um, by a, a mutual colleague of ours. Right. And uh, because I'd, I'd worked with her before to very modest success and um, I thought nothing of it until I was called on uh, December 23rd 2011 so within two days of sending this off she said would you like a contract would you like to write some more short stories and could you possibly weave the characters through the short stories mm-hmm. so then I kept then I kept moving a little faster. Yeah. What was your timeline? Six months? Uh, I had a year. A year. Okay. Uh-huh. And I wrote um, about 70 stories in about a year. I tried to do two a week. Yeah. So that's write, look at, put away, think about, come back and rewrite. One every three days. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means you can't think about whether your stuff is really working or not. You're thinking about, well, i got to just keep going, which is a very freeing feeling because good, bad, or indifferent – you're making a manuscript. Mm-hmm. Which is not bad advice for writers to do that. Not at all. People, people agonize about sentences. And uh, I ran into someone who, who works for the IJ, and she said, how's things going? And I said, well, you know, you have to write every day like I do, and you just keep going. Right. You don't worry about it. But I'd be in cafes, and I'd listen to people sometimes playing cards, and I'd throw a card game into my character's uh, action, and... Uh, at one point, uh, I was in um, the coffee roastery in Fairfax, and they were running the uh, espresso machine. And so then I put in the manuscript, would you please stop that incessant grinding, Harold? And it came right out of what I was hearing. Right. So I tried to be light with myself uh, and not criticize myself, even though every time I sat down with pencil to paper, I, I felt undoubtedly this was going to be the worst one I'd ever written. Hmm. Your own worst critic. My own worst critic, but I you know, I have to keep going, so I got to try, just get something, just get something down today. And the second day, I just type up the something that you wrote yesterday, don't edit it. And the third day, well, we know it's bad, but you just edit it and change it a little bit, and then the next day, start over. So do you have a different view of yourself after people respond to your book? It's been very satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it's been so successful, I think, that they must be talking about somebody else entirely because uh, I'm I'm not used to uh, people liking liking my work this much. And sometimes I think, oh, that really feels very nice. Good. Yeah. So um, what would you like to share from uh, (coughs) another part of your book? Well, as... um, You'd mentioned the cow. 
Do you want to the do blind that? cow? Oh, the blind yeah. cow. The blind cow never gets never gets red. So if you've read any of these things in the light, you, you'll notice there are a lot of cows in the road. Yeah. And uh, this one comes from August 9th, twenty twelve. At ten twenty p.m., a cow was on a blind curve. This is called the blind cow. Now Alice is um, Mildred's granddaughter, and she spends a lot of time with her grandmother. Were the cows out driving? Alice giggled and closed the paper and folded it carefully. Grandma liked things neat. Honestly, Alice, you and your imagination, Mildred clucked. The cows were loose. They get out all the time. She was pulling down her dirty gingham curtains. Perched on a kitchen stool, she didn't feel at all safe. The damn rod was stuck. She backed down carefully and slowly. Last day of summer vacation, Alice, make yourself useful. Take down the rest. Alice, watching dark clouds pile up along Inverness Ridge, chewed on a fingernail. Junior year loomed starting Monday, and she wasn't nearly ready. She climbed the rickety stool and, holding onto her cabinet door, reached for the curtain rod. The door wobbled under her weight. You trying to kill me, Grandma? She pulled on the curtain rod so hard she slipped a bit and the bracket broke. It's just curtains, Alice, honestly. Alice jumped back down onto the kitchen floor, grateful to be on solid ground again. You're going to hurt yourself with all this wobbly stuff. Why can't Grandpa do it? He's sleeping. You want to wake him? Go ahead. But I wouldn't if I were you. Mildred stuffed the gingham curtains into a hamper with other grayed, threadbare linens. Can I go back to my book now? Alice was supposed to be reading a boring book for school, but she was nearing the end of the Hunger Games and didn't want to put it down. She was just settling back onto the couch when she heard a yell. She found Grandma lying on the concrete floor of the laundry room. Her basket of linens and curtains spread out all around her, one brown Oxford shoe caught on a ledge. Grandma! I've told Fred to fix that ledge a thousand times, and now look what he did. Put down my dress, girl, right this second, avert your eyes. Alice, embarrassed, saw Grandma's athletic-type stockings roll down to just above her knees. White puffy skin spread out above, freckled and wrinkled. Alice fixed her dress. Fred, Fred, Mildred struggled to sit up. The pressure and coldness of the concrete floor seemed to suck all the energy out of her. Shall I call 911, Grandma? Get your grandfather, Mildred hollered and lay back down on the hard concrete. Fred was awake and distraught by the time the paramedics arrived. They loaded Mildred onto a stretcher. Alice watched them, examined the ledge on the concrete floor, and looked at him. I was asleep. For goodness sakes, I didn't make her fall, Fred cried, desperate for absolution. Mrs. Reinhardt will be fine, sir, if you'll just give us a little space, please, the paramedics asked. Mildred pursed her mouth. I can get up. Don't push me down, young man. What do you know about little old ladies? Ever been one? No, ma'am, but I do know. Nothing. Mildred put a stop to the paramedics' nonsense in a hurry. Does she really need to go to the hospital, Fred asked. Who was going to make his dinner? All Alice knew was how to make grilled cheese sandwiches, and he wasn't supposed to eat cheese. Fred. Mildred kept an eye on her husband as the team walked her down the rickety back stairs. She glanced at Alice. You're in charge, and for God's sakes, put the laundry in. The paramedics lifted her up one impossibly steep step. Hey, watch it. Who's heading this outfit? You? Well, you're no older than my granddaughter, Alice, and she's a hell of a lot smarter than you. Keep an eye out. They say there's a blind cow on the road. Mildred kept chatting as they closed the doors of the EMT van and sped away. Fred leaned his bulk on the back stair balustrade and wept. 
Alice, where are they taking her? Oh, God, I forgot to ask. Give me a sec, Alice answered and pulled out her iPhone. While she punched in the sheriff's number, she watched Grandpa stare down the road, his shoulders slumping, his body caving in on itself, one hand reaching for the railing and the other for his wife. Susanna Solomon, thank you for sharing with us some excerpts from your book, Point Ray's Sheriff's Calls, a collection of short stories. You'll be doing some presentations in the next month. You want to give us a list of some of those? On Sunday, March 9th, um, I'm giving a presentation with Dave Mitchell, the publisher and owner of the Point Ray's Light for uh, many decades. Mm -hmm. And he and I are giving a presentation called Two Takes on the Light at the Point Ray's Presbyterian Church at 3 p.m. on Sunday. Okay. And on Sunday, March 30th, the end of the month, Gil, you and I are giving Mm -hmm. a presentation, which is a benefit for the DeWitt Theater in Auburn. It's an all-days writers' conference. It is a great bargain for $30 for the full day, and I think it goes from 9 to 5 at the DeWitt Theater. I believe that's the time, yes. In in Auburn. So So do we have a... um a website we can go to to find more about Susan Solomon? Ah, uh, yeah. You go to SusannaSolomon.com. Perfect. That's S-U-S-A-N-N-A-S-O-L-O-M-O-N.com. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where... Our guests have been the director and filmmakers from the 7th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, which runs from March 27th through the 30th, and Susanna Solomon, author of Point Ray's Sheriff's Calls. The studio engineer for this broadcast has been Mark Fuller. The program manager is Robin Pressman. The theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. I want to take a moment to say bon voyage to Mark Fuller. Mark has been a valuable part of making Word by Word the distinctive show it has grown to be, and I wish him well in his new adventures. Be sure to tune in to next month's Word by Word on KRCB-FM from 4 to 5 Sunday afternoon, the first Sunday in April. Until then, enjoy the raindrops falling on our heads.
Fall. 